this episode, we're going to share six things that we wish we knew when we each bought our first home. Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Honestly, I'm sure there's more than six, Veronica, but today we're talking about our personal experience of buying our first homes and the things we wish someone had told us. But before we get into that, what on earth is behind you, Megan? Once again, (laughs) if you haven't been watching these on video, you won't know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's worthwhile tuning in. What is that? Jump onto YouTube and have a look at that one. So each week I find an unusual house. Um, and this one is in Texas. Uh, I'm sure if you're looking at it, you think, yep, that makes sense. It's the steel house. Um, Now it looks like it could be a weapon to me. It could be an eagle or a hawk. But anyway, this is is the steel house and someone does live in this structure. It's hideous. Veronica, you you (laughs) look like you just want to burn it to the ground. And you've brought, you found some pretty horrible houses, I have to say. Um, (laughs) This, I guess the fact it's in Texas, it looks like a giant gun of some description, bazooka or something, Mm. maybe an eagle, Mm. maybe also some sort of weird metallic cow. Um, Definitely very masculine and, um, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) And yeah. It's, wow. it's not a house that you're going to have high tea in. No, it's it's got scarcity, but not good scarcity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if this is a flyer, a flutter, or a flop. If you no. listen to last week's episode, you'll understand what we're talking about. All right, Veronica, <laughs> the one thing I really, so I, I bought my first home in 1998. It was in Gordon Park, six kilometres north of the Brisbane CBD. Cost me $141,000. It was a complete renovator, including several stumps that were falling down underneath the house. <laughs> Cracker. I thought your first home was in Lismore. <laughs> no, I grew up For in some Lismore, reason. but my yeah. first home was in, in Brisbane, actually. Yeah, right. after How far from the CBD? About six Ks. Right. So it's, yeah, you know, so it's not bad. 98, it was it was sort of outskirts of, you know, considered a bit further out than, but now very highly sought after quite a few $2 million sales in that suburb. Now it's actually the smallest 
suburb uh, on a per kilometre size and it has no shops or schools in it. Um, so it is quite a small suburb. Not many people know about it. But the, the they call it little that- no man's lands. Like wedged in (laughs) other suburbs. In between other suburbs. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uses all their facilities. Uh, So the (laughs) thing, the thing, you know, in hindsight, I wish someone had told me how this whole thing works. I wish I knew what the process was because, you know, for back then you went to the real estate agency, you sat down, you looked at their listings in a book and they talked to you about how much you got to spend. And they drive you around their car drive you around in their car, some of them, you know. Um, this one happened to be across the road from where I was renting, so it's it all like kind of worked days. out quite easily. Uh, <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> I'm trying to remember exactly what year I bought mine. Um, I think it was 1996. Yeah. And it was a studio apartment. Now, drum roll, how many yes. mistakes did I make? And <laughs> I, I've told my story a bit before, but I 100% agree with you on the process. I just had no idea what was happening. None. I So I made the offer to the, to the it was, okay, not only was it a studio, it was, it was technically off the plan only because it hadn't been finished. All the things that we do, do not do now. I actually, um, I actually hadn't heard that bit of that story, Veronica. I you. It, <laughs> Look, it was finished in the sense I literally walked inside the apartment. Like the building was at its final oh. stages. So I'd actually been inside it and had it was my apartment was finished basically, but the building hasn't quite finished. And so right. technically off the plan. Um, but so, and they set the price in off the plan. And it's just like, that's the price. You don't negotiate. And I tried to negotiate because they were surely going to negotiate. It was girly. Like it was almost like girly, this old. Kaja with his toupee. <laughs> the agent said to you. Call me girly. 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 Ooh. We don't negotiate. You know who he was dealing with, I'm like, with, oh, okay. Well, I, well, yeah. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> so, and then the next thing was, so I made the offer and then I didn't know, I didn't know what to do next. It was exactly. days went by and he rings me and says, are you going to buy this or what? And I'm like, what do you mean I made the offer? Now what? I didn't know what to do. Mm. And I did nothing. Because yeah. yep. I just sort of thought, oh, I've made an offer. I thought something will happen. <laughs> Yeah, someone will tell me what to do next. And and look, I, I remember it was my parents, they'd purchased a couple of properties in their life, but by, you know, just just their own homes. So I was sort of talking to them and um, my colleagues at my, my, my work, which was in recruitment, not many of them had bought properties, um, but it was really the real estate agents that I was relying on to get my information from. And I had no idea that their job was actually to represent the seller. I thought that they were working for me. I, I thought that I, you know, I'm buying the house, I'm paying all the money, therefore you must be doing this for me. <laughs> I had no concept of who was who in the zoo or who to go to or where to get the information. I didn't know. The agent said to me, oh, Megan, it's a renovator. I wouldn't bother getting a building and pest inspection done. <laughs> so I didn't. I'm presuming it's, it was timber as well. Oh, yeah. Is it eaten alive and turned <laughs> A number of the stumps were uh, largely riddled with um, holes Hollows, as a like result honeycomb. of, yeah, 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 honeycombed as a result of past termite activity. But you, you could see that. I mean, the stumps were, some of the stumps were falling off and I did intend to raise the house and restump it and all that sort of stuff. 
So, so you know, technically he was right. But what, what I didn't understand was it's not just the things that you see in a building and pest. It's people getting, you know, they get up in the roof foyers, mm. the things you can't see. What was the condition of the roof like? What was the condition of the gutters like? What was the wiring like? The wiring was atrocious. Um, <laughs> you know, all of these sorts of things that you can't see and you can't really know. I, I had no idea what I should and shouldn't do and the process in which I should do it. And my parents had only bought property in New South Wales, so they were familiar with that process, but they certainly weren't familiar with the process in Queensland. No. Uh, Well, my parents were no hope. I mean, they bought one property, I think, six months before I was born. They're still in that house. (laughs) Still there. (laughs) Yeah, still there. And um, so my parents aren't known for being really motivated to big things around property, you know. Right. In mm-hmm. fact, I am the complete antithesis of them in so many ways in my life, but <laughs> that is just one of them. And so, of course, I couldn't turn to them for advice and, you know, I had an ex-boyfriend and and he sort of, he actually, he had a mate who was a developer who, and that's actually where my property search started. He said, oh, my mate's, you know, got a development. They've got these one-bedroom apartments in there. You should uh. go and buy one. And I went in there, thank God, I had a brain at least, I had no idea what I was doing, but I walked into this and it was ground floor on a busy road and I was like, well, there's something yuck. I don't want to live here. Right. So it was more that really that saved me. So it was an instinct decision really, wasn't it? It wasn't evidence-based. It was total instinct. Oh, you're kidding me. Yuck. And um, anyway, but it it started me out there looking for property, but I didn't Mm. even look. Here's a mistake. Um, I'm sure we're going to get there with this list, but... um, you know, <laughs> I had no idea there were other things I could look at buying. So you talk other about the process. Apartment. I didn't. I went and got a loan approved after I made the offer. I didn't have any idea how much money I could borrow. Talk about getting everything in the wrong order. Whoa! Like, yeah, I could have borrowed more money. <laughs> you turned like, the pay system right upside I, down, Veronica. The pay system is that you know step by step process <laughs> that we take people through in your first home buyer guide course. Wow, you really. Do you know what? If I done the pay system, if that existed back then, I probably would still own the ha- the property that I would have bought then, because and oh, I'll, because I'll it would have made a different decision. Keep listening, because I'll explain what I mean by that. Mm. So, what's the second thing we should move on to? What's the second oh, thing we wish we knew? I, I wish I knew, had known what to look for. So I was I was looking for that appeal, you know that that house that I would fall in love <gasps> oh. with. Oh, I'm going to make it so cute, you know. Um, And there are some flukes that I, some fluky good decisions that I made. And that was, it was an elevator position in a good street, very wide, lots of houses, no units or townhouses in the street, a little bit of renovation work starting to happen. You know, that that was pure fluke, honestly. Mm. I lived across the road. That was really, (laughs) really the signboard went up and I went, oh, I can afford that. That looks good. I can afford it. (laughs) Um, so, but I didn't know what to, what to look for. I was fixated on a renovator. I really wanted to do this renovation thing. I had had that advice, you know, buy the worst house in the best street that you can afford. It doesn't always add up to the right option though. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in hindsight, there are other things that I could have purchased. I I did all right in that property, but really it was a float. Mm. It, It was a B grade um, property 
and I probably could have bought something better if I'd known what to look for. Um, and the opportunity cost was by the time I sold that, I was out of the market in Mel- living in Melbourne for a few years. By the time I came back into the market, you know, prices had really gone ahead strongly. So I'd missed some upside opportunity in having, you know, being in the marketplace. Yeah, well, I my place was too small, way too small. It was 36 square metres. And I, I was sort of like, oh, this bank is affordable. Bank money for that. Yeah, well, that was before the rules changed, right? And actually there's uh, another thing because the rules changed, the bank lending limits changed in the five years I owned that property. So basically by the time I sold it, there was this 50 square metre rule that most banks were saying, oh, because if it's not more than 50 square metres, we're going to require more equity, you know, before mm-hmm. you buy the thing. And that meant that even though by that point I'd only lived in it one year because I outgrew it. And yeah. so I had it rented out. It got good, good rent. And this is a good example too. Yield, right, is not that I had great yield. In fact, it paid for itself, but I wasn't able to keep it because the bank said, look, I won't lend, we won't lend you enough money to buy that and the house that you want to buy. Ah, yes. Whereas if it was then. bigger, same price, same rent. I could have afforded to keep it, but it was because yeah. it was under 50 square metres. So so rules changed for starters, but it, I didn't know what to look for either in the sense that I outgrew it. It was basically like buying myself a hotel room. <laughs> you know, how long do you want to live in a hotel room for? How's your entertaining going? You know, how are, well, you, how are your, uh, your dinner parties? <laughs> it had. It, one thing it, it was a very well-designed studio. I'll give you. I had a proper kitchen and it had a, and a, and a balcony that I could fit a four, uh, like a, a table for four seat for people. So I used to have people over for dinner and, um, you know, it was well-known as a bit of a party pad, you know, and, and also I got on with a lot of locals, the neighbours. So we actually had really quite a good community in there. But, yeah, and one friend came over to, to look around. I was all very proud. And Andrew stands in the <laughs> literally opened the front door, says, show me around. I said, well, stand in the corner and swivel your head. <laughs> that was it. See everything from the front door, everything. Um, so it was small but perfectly formed. But, yeah, so it was just too tight, too tight. Yeah, that, you know, what, knowing what to look for often as a first home buyer, you're so influenced by the things that you hear, the things that you read, and they're, they're not aimed at you specifically in your circumstances and your stage in life and, and where you, you're going to be in five years and what your plans are. And, you know, they're, they're such, it's such generic information that other people give you. Um, so you're often pointed in the wrong direction of what to look for because it's all everyone else's biases. And honestly, if... If they're not, an, you know, if the person that's talking to you and telling you what to look for, you know, look for this, look for that, you should buy here and what about this one, often they've only bought one or two houses themselves and they don't know if they've done well out of that house yet because it's not until you go to sell that you really know whether your property oh. has performed or underperformed. You know, this is one of the bugbears that I have, you know, the beginning of this we always say we're old enough to be your mums maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not quite true because I don't go backwards of- in age. A lot of first home buyers are in their 40s, so that's not actually true. A lot of our members are actually well into their 40s and some even just heading up to their 50s, which is not old at all. Definitely not old enough to be their their mothers. (laughs) However, 
you know, I get approached, particularly for the Elephant in the Room podcast, people say, oh, you know, why don't you get people in your 20s, in their 20s that have bought, you know, investment properties and why don't you get them on and interview them? And I'm like, because the proof is in the pudding and they yeah. haven't had those properties long enough to know whether they're successful or not. Yeah. The actual acquisition of the property is not the success. It's not the measure mm. of success. It's whether you bought yourself a bloody good one and, and has it done its job for you. How performs I would say, long term. Yeah, mm. so here I was in my 20s. I bought my first property. I was not a success because I, I bought something without even considering what other options that I had available mm. to me. Mm. And I was mentioning earlier, I actually got online because we have access to databases that show you what, you you know, past history. And I went back to when I first bought that property and I looked in the very same suburb for only, and I know, look, let's, I'll, I'll first up, I paid $129,000 for it, right? Times have changed. But less than $150,000 in that same suburb, I could have bought a little house. So I bought a studio oh. apartment for- Because you know, it was brand new and shiny? 20% more, mm. 20% more only, I could have bought a house. So, so I guess, you know, one of the things that you're saying to people is if you'd known the process and you'd gone and checked your borrowing capacity first before falling in love and thinking, wow, this is lovely, shiny and, and in the right location, you might have actually opened your mind to other op- opportunities. If I'd raised my sight, mm. if I just had a look, if I didn't assume, like there's all these things that I just... I was in my tiny little bubble and I just had no idea, none. It's very Zero. invigorating too, that that process of, oh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to, oh, I like this one. I, oh, I think this is the one. Like it, you sort of almost get wrapped up in that emotion of I think that I can buy this. I can see myself putting my bed there and my clothes can go there and that's where <laughs> I'll have my coffee in the morning and I'll put the toaster there and that probably filled up your entire apartment. Pretty much. I think I had too much of a can-do attitude. Too much. <laughs> the third lesson. What's the third lesson? How to work out what to pay. Um, so my my experience was this house had an asking price and the asking price was $145,000. <laughs> so I offered $141,000 because that said to me, you know, don't you don't have to pay what they're asking. Offer them a little bit less. So I bought it for $141,000. But, you know, my hindsight tells me I didn't know price research on that. I didn't know. It might have been worth $130,000 for all I know. Um, but I let the asking price and the agent tell me and dictate where I should consider that the value of that property. I had no concept of how to look at what had sold, what, you know, <laughs> comparable sales, what in the world were they? Um, so how to work out what to pay was a little bit like, oh, okay, so you're asking that, I'll offer a little bit more and then we'll come to an agreement and sign a contract. Um, and, and, of course, that's just not how you do it. You know, the, the, I wish I'd known more about that. I would wish I'd known how to assess property really well, the difference between a western-facing rear and a north-facing rear, the difference between, you know, I knew I could only buy a small block of land, which in Brisbane's 405 square metres. So I, I, I don't it's think... Huge. Can, it's huge. We're right. It's huge. Compared to Balmain. I'm in Newtown. My block of land is big for Newtown. It's 256 square metres. <laughs> It's all relative. Uh, oh, no, people go, oh, you're lucky you got a double block. <laughs> <laughs> it's all but, relative. You know, it, that, that's, that's something I wish I knew. 
is how to how to work out what to pay. Um, and, and it was we, the very first course that we developed, the free course yeah. that we developed was how to work out how to what to pay because information is so freely available now that you can actually be, be misled by auto valuations and mm. property price reports and um, est- property price estimates. You know, they can be worse. I had a client, and this is, you know, very different price range, but a client sent me a bank um, report on an apartment, a riverfront apartment that estimated that it was worth $3.6 million. And I've looked at the sales and gone, well, that one wasn't on the riverfront. That one doesn't have a view. That like it, the, the data that was used was so misleading um, that the uh, the price they arrived at was was just you know way. It was about a million dollars off the mark. Yeah, uh, that's a fairly big difference. Uh, that's mm. that's you're either in or out at that level. But when when you and I developed that course, the reason we did that free course right up front was we wanted to make sure people weren't being misled and paying too much because those property reports can sometimes be. 20% over. Way out. What it's actually worth. Uh, just shocking. Um, so, yeah, so if you want that free course, just the free mini course, go to our website. It's there. It's home. It's on the front page. It's on the home page. Free. It's bloody everywhere. It's on the course page. We want to page. stop just- you from paying too much. <laughs> But, you know, another thing you talk about how to work out the price to pay was the, the thing you wish you knew. No, I wish now, I did. I've already mentioned about the fact that I bought off the plan, so therefore there was no negotiation. But the actual, interestingly enough, um, the other side of, of, you know, anchoring to the asking price and how much that is folly, you really do need mm. to work it out. Yeah. Because there are some times when properties sell for more than the asking price if they're priced yeah. to sell. So, you know, to assume that you always got to offer less, it is, it's so important to understand what it's worth and do that work. But on the flip side, with the auction campaign, so if you're going for a property that's going to auction, it's not going to have an asking price that you come down from. Yeah. It's got a guide that you go up from, unless you're in Queensland where they can't give you a no guide. guide. And so people go, oh, I'd say 10%. But who said? You know, like, yeah. I mean, who said? I mean, what's the yes, guide based on? That's what they would have put on the agency agreements. This is fallacy that that means the property's worth 10% more. Now, sometimes agents overquote by accident. And if you put 10% on top of that, you're overpaying. Sometimes, most of the time, they underquote. How much are they underquoting, though? I've been ca- I've been keeping tabs in Sydney of late. And, you know, it's very common to see 30% underquoting. So if you're just adding 10%, you're never going to be in the hunt. Yeah. So you're you looking really- at the wrong properties or... or- getting yourself ready to pay the wrong price That's or you'll it. end up standing at an auction and running Opening with the bid. blows you out. <laughs> yeah, or, or going, I missed out on so many, I'm just going to keep going until I buy this property and yep. putting yourself in mortal danger. Mortal? So Probably not mortal. Financial maybe. danger um, of, and if that was of paying a price that you could can't afford. Yes. Yeah, it might be too. So that <laughs> might be if yeah. you go home to your partner and say, guess what, we just bought that property. <laughs> ah, that, that does happen. So that's the third thing we wish we knew, how to price a property. So we've sold that for you. Fourth, what not to do with a renovator. Yeah, yeah. Look, we talk about this and um, we talk about this a lot. So you, you, you often talk about apartments and what can and can't be done and don't make assumptions that you can do certain things or you can't do certain things. The house that I bought, as I said, the stumps were literally termite eaten and and, and and once the house wasn't on an angle, it was pretty close to ending up being on an angle if I didn't do something about getting some new, you know, getting it raised up. And that's what you do in Queensland. You raise the timber houses up and you put new stumps underneath and build another level underneath on a concrete slab. So I 
tried to do a full house raise and building without a licensed builder. <laughs> so I, my first renovation, oh my tried God. to be the project manager because, you know, at 23 or whatever I you was. You know it all, don't you? I, I know it all. What don't I, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> I have no idea what I didn't know. And the biggest issue, the biggest failing that I made was I didn't put termite protection on the slab. In a weatherboard Queenslander in Brisbane. So it could never actually be built in. It took took about six different owners after me for someone to finally go, fine, I'll pull the slab out and start again. You're kidding me. (laughs) What a terrible, terrible mistake. You know, what you don't know is so the vastness of what you don't know. And, And that was the thing. I really, you know, I had this love and there weren't TV shows around about how to renovate houses and different steps and processes and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. I just had this this beautiful emotional vision of transforming this ugly duckling into a beautiful home that I would love and, and you know, um, people would admire and no idea what I should and shouldn't do with this property. Well, my first investment house, which I did renovate and sold, um, a couple of years ago and I sold that, made really good money and, and actually paid for the renovation of my house with profits from that. So it, it did its job as a renovator. But mm-hmm. I had this idea that I wanted to basically buy a two-bedroom cottage that I could open up the back and make it all open planning in stage one and then stage two I'd go upstairs. And so, and this is before I was a buyer's agent, right? Yeah. This is when I was a sales agent and that's where I was not as critical as I am now on property. And so when sales agents are very much more likely to gloss over things that are negative about properties and buyers agents put it that way you're good at overcoming objections yeah, absolutely over uh, objection handling so so this particular property um it couldn't actually do it that way and the reason I couldn't do it that way was because it was too narrow at the back I had to actually just go up and go out at the same time it was oh, it was wow. sort of weird it just wouldn't allow me to actually turn it into a two bedroom house or re- keep it as a two bedroom house if I went out and didn't <laughs> I had to lose some of the one of the downstairs bedrooms to make the living area the right size because of which the, would then be a one bedroom. Yeah. And so ah. I actually did put two bedrooms upstairs and a bathroom upstairs and I had the one bedroom downstairs and a bathroom downstairs and a nice open plan. It was a nice house, but I, you know, I bought it thinking I was going to do it one way because that was the Stage good it. cost yeah. effective. And it's a good example yeah. of someone who really should should have known. I should have known better actually then because I had enough information to make me dangerous, uh, enough knowledge <laughs> to make me dangerous. But but I just thought, oh, you can do it. You can do it. You know, I mm. really did gloss over that detail that actually meant that when I sat down with an architect, I very quickly realised that I'd made an assumption there that just was, and if I continued with my original plan, which I could have, it would have been a dog of a house. I would have really screwed mm. up the floor plan. So I had to sort of bite the bullet and do it all in one hit. You had to tilt. I had to tilt. I had to pivot. I had to pivot. It worked out all right in the end, but oh, I'm lucky the I had the word money. Of 2020. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Number five. Oh, Lesson number five. I, I wish, wish, wish I knew who the agent was working for. I really do. And I wish I knew how to read between the lines. Mm. Um, and the biggest lesson I mentioned it earlier was I didn't know. And this is not, I'm not stupid. I'm a reasonably intelligent person. You're reasonably this is intelligent. Well, before. <laughs> well before I was in any sort of real estate kind of role, um, I didn't know that they were paid by the seller. Their job was to get the highest price for the seller. Their job was not to tell me 
what to do, what the process was, what I should be thinking about, who I needed to talk to, how to protect myself. That's that I did not know that was not their job, you know, because a lot of agents are friendly and helpful. But in Queensland, particularly, the basis of property law is KVM tour, which is literally let the buyer beware. So the buyer has to know what questions to ask, who to ask, how to interpret the information, what it means, mm. how it affects price, how it affects future viability of the property. I had no idea about any of that, none whatsoever. And it wasn't until I was heading towards settlement and the solicitor was asking me certain questions. And I was just like, oh, I don't know. No one told me that. <laughs> So you can see how you're so reliant on luck if you don't actually go and arm yourself with the right information because you don't know what you don't know. You are reliant 100% on luck going your way, like really. And luck obviously went your way to a degree, um, you know, but like... But there's there's intelligence, there's situational intelligence, right? So you don't... I, I work my, in my bias agency business. I work for very well-regarded lawyers, politicians, um, medical specialists, mm. incredibly intelligent in their field, but they recognise they don't have the time to fill themselves with the information mm. of the things that they don't know about property. And yeah. that's where that, you know, that expert and knowing who to consult and when to consult and what the process is and who's who in the zoo, um, it's so important and, and not relying on someone else to tell you what you need to know unless you're working with an independent buyer's agent who is entirely on your side and, and paid by you and works for you. That's the only person really that you can rely on to give you all the information that you need. Yes. So the seller... The, the, the real estate agent's working for the vendor and some of them don't even do a great job working for the vendor. They still work for themselves before they even work for vendors. At the end of the day, though, you're number three on the list. <laughs> they, good agents will look after you because they do have to look after you to the degree that they care for the buyer and they look after the buyer because they've got to get you to the point of actually buying the property. That's their job, right? Got to get the deal across the line. But yeah. also, Veronica, and you would remember this, you as the buyer, if you buy that property, you are their future seller. Mm. So then you become someone that they actually want to have a relationship with on an yeah. ongoing basis. So but in the agents, purchase, you've got to remember. You've yeah, got to remember I mean, they're working for the seller. Agents, you know, there are good agents out there that will be helpful, they'll be responsive, they'll mm. answer your questions and, and they'll even guide you if you need to go to a, you know, a conveyor. Like for me, for instance, the, the agent rang me and said, well, are you going to take the contract to your lawyer or, or what do you mean? So he recommended a conveyancer to me, you know what right. I mean? Like it was like yeah. he is the one that said, well, this is what you have to do. I'm like, oh, and a lot of buyers do. They get the guidance from the sales agent, which is yeah. helpful, I guess, because somehow it's all got to happen. But the reality is, like Megan's saying, they're not looking after you. You have to learn the process yourself, which is mm. what your first-time buyer do- guide does, teaches you so that you're empowered not to rely on the agent who may be good, may be nice, may be genuine, but may not. Yeah, and they've got to look after the seller's interests. Yep. yep. Exactly I, wish I'd, I wish I'd known that. I really do. So then finally, the the sixth thing that I wish I'd known when I bought my first prop- property was how to structure things to get ready to buy the next one because I, I did uh-huh. have a plan to acquire multiple properties over a period of time. Mm. Um, and, and I didn't know that there were different lending structures, different strategies, different entities that you buy property in, um, different ways of of actually working out how to leverage. 
cross collateralization. Oh my God, I got it out the first time. Well, usually done. I stumble on that word. Mm. You know, if you've got two properties, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? <laughs> and and um, you know, sometimes it works in your favor, but if you're going to get rid of one, then you know, or one goes down in value, or one goes up in value, there are all these things that you really need to know. And I wish I'd known that bigger picture. Mm. I wish I'd gone to a financial advisor before I bought my first property so I, I could have a bit of an idea of that bigger picture so that I would I knew what I was working towards instead of just thinking, I'm going to buy this one, then I'm going to buy another one, and then I'm going to buy another one. Mm. Um, I, wish I'd, I wish I'd understood how, what the steps were, who to talk to, and how to plan it out better. I would have made different decisions. Yeah. I mean, I actually once added up um, or the, the potential difference to my situation now, which is pretty good, <laughs> right? <laughs> and if I had not made the mistakes along the way, and okay. I have to say at the point that I added it up, I reckon there was a million dollars in it. Okay. Right. Now I'm a, you know, I've got a few, few couple of extra decades on top of my twenties. So, you know, there's, that's time, obviously the compounding nature of those decisions. Mm. So I sort of, I, I plotted it out. One of those mistakes that I made was along that structuring and what it was. And my accountant said something to me, but I didn't understand it and they didn't make sure I understood it. Right. And what that was was that I had a, um, so after that little tiny apartment that I had to sell, um, bought the first house, and when I sold that house, by that time I'd had that investment property, that the, the house I was telling you about that I ultimately renovated and had the house that I was living in. And when I sold the house I was living in and I moved in with a partner, okay, and I decided to use the proceeds of that house to renovate the investment property. And I put all the money on the mortgage. I can see by your face, if anyone's watching this video, they can see by Megan's face, she knows exactly the mistakes I've made. I put the money on, I paid it off the mortgage. I didn't even have an offset account. I paid it off the mortgage. And then I redrew and paid for the, the renovation out of the mortgage, mm. right? I missed out on so many tax opportunities, tax benefit opportunities by doing it that way. Mm. And as I said, my accountant just said this one little throwaway line that I didn't understand and he didn't make sure I understood it. Mm -hmm. And yep. so I thought That's I was doing the right picture. thing by mm. paying down debt and I thought I was doing the right thing by using cash to pay for that renovation even though it was an investment property. Now, any accountants out there amongst you will know that that was all wasted opportunity from a tax yeah. planning perspective. Yeah, and this I did pay a lot more tax for a lot, a lot, and that ultimately is why I had to sell that property to renovate my own home, was because I had so much equity in it. Debt was, on and the I would have had more equity in that house ultimately than I would have had in my own home, and so all the debt would have been on my non-tax deductible debt on my own home rather than in investment property, which is the reason it got to the point with my tax planning because I do have a really good accountant now who gives me good guidance about when to do what and all the rest of it and how to do what, and that is something I definitely wish that I had known way back then. So there you go. There's the six things that we wish we had known when we bought our first home. And the big reason that we started Home Buyer Academy is we wanted to be able to, you know, an expert is simply a collection of experiences. So that's what we want to do is share the experiences that we've got with you so that you don't make the same mistakes or have the same regrets or have, you know, your million dollar opportunity costs. Um, and you can go into things with your eyes wide open and knowing the things that you don't know that you don't know. 
In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff. 